Welcome to another Godcast from Whosoever, an online magazine for gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender Christians. I'm Candace Shalou Hodge, the founder and editor of Whosoever. His book, What the Bible Really Says About Homosexuality, took the gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender community by storm when it was first published back in 1994. Despite Christianity's rejection of GLBT people, Daniel Helminiak's book seemed to fill a void for our community and empowered us to begin working to reconcile our sexuality and spirituality. Coming up, we'll talk with Daniel about his latest work and hear a reading from his book, The Transcended Christian. Over the past couple of months, Whosoever has hosted teleseminars on spiritual self-defense for GLBT Christians and what the Old Testament and New Testament really say about homosexuality. If you missed out on those seminars, you can still order the audio of all of them at Whosoever. Go to whosoever.org slash seminars, and for a small donation, the audio of these calls can be yours. More teleseminars are planned, so keep checking that page for details. Daniel Helminiak is an author, lecturer, psychotherapist, priest, and psychology professor. He grew up in Pittsburgh in a small Polish community whose center was the local Catholic Church. He entered seminary, completed a Bachelor of Arts degree in philosophy at St. Vincent College in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, and sacred theology degrees in Catholic doctrine at the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome. Daniel completed a Ph.D. in systematic theology at Andover Newton Theological School in Newton, Pennsylvania, and at Boston College, where he also earned a Master of Arts in Person psychology, and he completed a Ph.D. in educational psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. A Roman Catholic priest for 28 years, Daniel is now a best-selling author of several books, including What the Bible Really Says About Homosexuality, and his latest book, Spirituality for Our Global Community. He's published articles in dozens of magazines, journals, and other publications. He's a professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of West Georgia, where he teaches and writes about human development, spirituality, interdisciplinary method, ethics, and sexuality. Given his highly religious background, I asked Daniel when he first came to realize that he was a gay man. It must have been like into my early years in the priesthood. Uh, There were some inklings of issues going on while I was in seminary, but I had no idea what they meant. (laughs) I mean, this was before uh, Stonewall already. I was an intensely emotional young man who had deep feelings for my friends. That's how I interpreted it. (laughs) And it wasn't until actually I got to Boston when I was studying theology there that I began to actually grapple with the facts and came to acknowledge what was going on and started exploring the the gay world and coming out and got involved in ministry with dignity and those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And then, as I said, I was hoping somehow to work that out within the church. It was clear that I couldn't. I officially wrote to the Vatican telling them that I was resigning, but they have never accepted my resignation, never responded. So I'm taking that to mean that they want me to continue to represent them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, if they they had any objections, they they should have voiced them. Yeah. It was in Boston where where I actually came out. Uh, It was in those uh, late 70s, uh, the incredible days of uh, optimism and enthusiasm and pride parades and contribution to public service and mm-hmm. oh two three hundred people in a church singing to God and praising God for their sexu- sexuality and 
it's an amazing time. So what do you think changed that? AIDS in the 80s? Yeah, yeah, that part has shut some of it down, and I guess becoming more accepted, and I don't know, I, I have real deep concerns about the younger generation, just having done some work on the use of condoms, they tell me 50% of gay men are not using condoms mm. anymore, which is which is infantile yes. level of level of uh, um, uh, ethical thinking. Uh, and I had a friend, that's peculiar, a friend who's worked in these areas for decades in Canada. I had written a, a letter to the editor criticizing this on the basis of Holberg stages of ethical thinking and showed that this thinking, you know, just for me, mm -hmm. that's the baseline stage one of infants up till about age six <laughs> or seven. And he said it was really good that I put it in terms of Kohlberg because most people he knows are saying this is just religion telling us we can't do what we want to do and they don't want to listen to religion. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm thinking, what sense of, of morality do we have that we think it has to do with religion? Yeah. Or even with God, if you want to go that far. Right. It's about life. <laughs> it's about ourselves. And that's one of the themes that I, I guess I have been developing through my work on spirituality. That once we get the Bible in place, and it's not dominating in any foolish way, that we have to start looking very reasonable and sensibly about how are we going to structure our lives, yeah. how are we going to structure our world, how can we live together. And those things, in the end, they're up to us. That's true. It's fallen to us at this point. Well, backing up just a little bit, your book, What the Bible Really Says About Homosexuality, was a big seller in the GLBT community. I remember it being on the top of all of the bestseller lists in a, of uh, gay bookstores that, that I knew. What led you to write this book? That was, again, my own struggling. I, I couldn't easily just acknowledge that I was homosexual without having somehow worked out the religious angle on it. Mm -hmm. And one important one was the Bible. That's not everything in the Catholic Church. And I, being Catholic, the Bible is not the end-all and the be-all. I wish more people would think that way. Yeah. But, but I had to resolve those questions. And so I was following the research. And when Bill Countryman finally published his book, Third Greed and Sex, it was the first thing I read that made absolute sense of every aspect of that section in Romans. Yep. The women gave up their natural intercourse or unnatural. Natural mistranslated, by the way. There's all these little glitches in that. But it occurred to me that I was at peace with it. And I said, people ought to know this. So the scholars were all aware of what was out there, but, mm -hmm. but all we're hearing is preachers from the pulpit. And so I said, I'm going to write this up in some easily accessible form as best I can and let people know what's happening. Uh, and that's where it came from. Well, it really touched a nerve, so why do you think it, it, your book was and, can, and actually still continues to be so popular? Uh, well, what people tell me is that it's readable. Mm -hmm. that, that's one of the comments I get from almost everyone. They can read it and understand it. And I, I tried to make it that way. And the other thing I think is that I was very responsible in dealing with the evidence. Yeah. I tried to be absolutely accurate as best I could be and not just fudging things off to make it look like gay is good and that sort of thing. Because that was going on and that still goes on with a lot of the quoting of scriptures. Mm -hmm. uh, it's pretty clear to me, it, it, it's as clear as historical evidence could ever get that the Bible is not concerned, was not concerned about the issues we're dealing with. The one prohibition of Leviticus has nothing to do with our culture or society or our understanding of lesbian gay life. 
I, I just think it's really important to give solid historical evidence. And it can be done. And I suspect that's also one of the reasons that that, that, that book is, is so popular. It's being it's used in theological schools and, and places of that kind. Yeah. You know, people who know their work quite well and if they trust it. I guess that's a, a, a vote of confidence. At whosoever at, at the magazine, that's still the most popular section of our magazine is the part that deals with homosexuality in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that the gay and lesbian community has such trouble moving on from... from and it, we did, we've done teleseminars on the Bible, and, and it's people who know all of this, but they just want to hear it again. Why, why do we have to be so right with oh. the Bible and, and can't move on? Yeah, that's a tough one. A tough in the sense of breaking through. I put my psychologist hat on at this point. Uh-huh. It's more an issue of the heart mm. than it is a matter of the mind. We, we can learn what it's supposed to say, look at the evidence, but there's these nagging doubts in our minds, in the back of our heads. Yeah. And this is what I was dealing with when I insisted on going through that literature until it seemed to be resolved. You know, am I really going to hell? Am I just deceiving myself? Is this the devil telling me, you know, that this is okay when in fact it isn't? Mm-hmm. All those, and those are the same arguments that the fundamentalist preachers are giving us all the time from the pulpit. Oh, yeah? And then we hear these things coming out of the Vatican every periodically. And, and those statements have their effect, and, and they shock people who are honest, sincere in their religion. And, and you, you rethink it again. You pull back, and, and it takes an awful lot of work, not just the intellectual work, but also psychological, emotional work of the heart to undo the ties of religion mm-hmm. that go so deeply into us. Well, and you've written other books about going deeper in, into spirituality and making that leap. In, in your latest book, The Transcendent Christian, you write, only those who violate religion in some way will grasp the mystery inherent in religion. What exactly do you mean by that? I, what I'm saying is that a lot of religion has its externals. It has its structures, its practices, its, even some of its beliefs. And a lot of them come from other eras. And unless one is willing to question and break down some of the taboos that surround religion, one does not begin to realize the core, which is in our own hearts, the trusting, if we say it in Christian terms, the Holy Spirit that speaks within us. Uh, in my sense, the Spirit is the, the aspect of Christianity that tells us to move forward, to break out of older paths. Uh, there's a, uh, one of my favorite chapters is on the Holy Spirit in this book. So it's that uh, the notion of, of moving ahead, of breaking out. Jesus himself represented it. I mean, he broke the laws. He was criticized all over for that. It was this issue of getting out of the taboos into the substance. It's not what you put into your mouth that makes you unclean, but what comes out of it because of what's in your heart, that sort of thing. And I think periodically religion has to do that because as it goes through the centuries, it collects, well, issues that for its time were good, but now are quite foolish. Yeah. I mean, when you look at some of the, the sexual ethics, for example, I mean, they made perfect sense in older days. I mean, 25% of women died in childbirth. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was no cure for sexually transmitted diseases. Uh, if someone was born out of wedlock, that person's life was virtually useless. Mm-hmm. I mean, you put all those things together, there was really good reason 
to be real restrictive on sexual practices, especially in heterosexual forms. And the others, of course, were just lumped all together within that, and it was just considered surrender to some beast within us. We had such primitive notions of what sexuality and humanity are about. Yeah. And if you put that in, in all in place, it, some of the, the practices, they make good sense. But we are in a, such a new era. It's barely a century that we've learned anything scientifically about sexuality. I mean, it was only in the late, was it 1875, I think, that we knew that it takes an egg and a sperm yeah. both to come together to make a conception. Yeah. I mean, that's outrageous. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, outrageous. I don't know that we found it out. It's wonderful. But it's just absolutely recent. And it's only in this century, oh, I guess in the 50s, when we're openly starting to talk about the whole array of sexual diversity. It's not just lesbian, gay, sexual orientation, but the, the uh, bisexuality and transvestism and transgenderism and intersex. All of these things are just virtually unknown. And now we realize there's a whole array of diversity that is in itself neutral, nothing wrong with it. It depends on how one uses any of these things. Mm -hmm. And, and we're, we're left with no way of dealing with that. With it, it, these questions were never addressed. Well, in this book, you take on some very basic Christian beliefs, like whether Jesus died for our sins and, and things like that. And you say that Jesus didn't die for our sins. So why did he have to die? Ah, I say that we are saved because he was willing to go to the end. He was willing even to give his life for what was right. And my point is it's not the death, the pain that saved us. It was the virtue that he expressed, even to the ultimate. And the reason I say that is because I can't imagine God wanted him to die. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine God clapping his hands in joy because Jesus was suffering. I mean, that is perverse. Yeah. And yet it's what we hear. Uh, it's absolutely perverse. In my mind, it was Jesus' incredible virtue. The purity of his heart, the goodness of his soul, the, the kindness that he had, even to the end, that's what was saving. Uh, it is what reversed, if you want to put it into the traditional theological context, it's what reversed the human standing before God. Finally, there was a human being who was absolutely faithful. That's what turned the story around. It wasn't the death. It wasn't the suffering. It was the goodness of one of us. So one of us now was had opened up a new way to get to God. That, that's how I understand that. It, it makes more sense to me. And, and I would just say that, that what I'm saying sounds heretical to many positions. There is nothing in the history of Christianity that ever clearly defined how Jesus saved us. Different traditions have their versions. But there was, there was no consensus ever on how it happened, what, what the mechanism was. It was just that somehow through his death we were saved. And even the scriptures say that. If you read them clearly, they don't say he paid the price of our sin. There's a place, I don't remember the exact location right now, where he nailed the death sentence to the cross and the debt was canceled. It doesn't say it was paid. It said it was canceled, which is a very different thing. Uh, so looking at it from that point of view, I think the emphasis on the death is, is, was mistaken. And from a psychological point of view, it's advocating masochism. Sure. Uh, and it's advocating sadism on the other side. That's yeah. hardly healthy stuff, and we work that in. I've seen it in my own upbringing, uh -huh. where penance was the thing to do, and by suffering somehow you saved the world. 
I think you save the world by getting out there and doing the hard work it takes. That's the suffering. You want to pay the price, go and try to do something and change. Change the world. Yes. You'll, you'll have enough suffering just doing that without imposing crosses on yourself. Well, and that's and that's what you were what you talk about when you talk about taking up your cross is that it's that the innocent end up paying the price. Uh, talk about talk a little bit about that. Yeah, this, this I got it directly from Bernard Lonergan. He called this the law of the cross. Mm-hmm. And, and the basic point is simply, uh, Augustine said it. it. It's simply that the the rogues of the world are not going to change to make things better. Those who are innocent and goodwill, they're going to end up picking up the slack. And it's not fair. The good people do more than their share. But if they didn't, they'd become rogues just like the rest, and the whole system would go down the drain. And the cross is an example of that. There was no just reason that Jesus had to suffer and die. Mm -hmm. But our world did that, and unless he was willing to face that and pay even that price, the good that he was attempting to do wouldn't have been achieved. And so it comes down to that issue, that law of the cross. And it can be translated, I think, and this is what I do with much of what I'm writing in that book. The wisdom that's in the tradition can be said in non-religious terms. Mm-hmm. I, I just said it. It's the innocent who are going to have to pick up the slack. You can say the law of the cross if you want and say it in Christian words, but you can also say it in a way that anybody of goodwill could understand and say, yeah, I'm, I'll go my extra mile because I want things to be better. Right, and I've had people complain to me before, you know, that they understand that they have to, that the vicious cycle has to be broken, but they don't understand, well, why do I have to be the one who has to forgive? Why do I have to be the one who has to stop the violence and not exact revenge? Why, yeah. why, why is this my job? Why can't the other person do it? And, and you know, and we get tired. We get tired of being yeah. the ones who are always forgiving and always uh, not taking revenge. Yeah, I, I'm struggling right now at this very point in my life with that. I'm like, how much more? I'm so tired of it. <laughs> <laughs> simple, simple things like, uh, like around the building. I live in a condo. It's my neighborhood. It's my home. There are a lot of good people here, and as a while you get to know people and say hello, and then there are others who come in and you have trash on the floors mm-hmm. and breaking the uh, the windows in the, the the mirrors in the elevator. Silly things. <laughs> and, and how often do you pick stuff up and put things away for other people? And after a while you get tired of it. Uh, to me, this is what faith means. It's not that I'm going to believe in God and believe that Jesus saved us by dying on the cross. I mean, that's easy enough to say. Mm-hmm. Try living a good life and continue going on doing what's right in the, in the face of all the opposition. That's faith. Can I believe that it's worth being an honest, good person? That it's worth picking up the slack a little bit beyond my my fair share? Mm-hmm. Is, it, is it worth all that? Can I believe? Do I believe in goodness? To me, that's the, 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 the bottom line notion of faith. And that opens up into God and Jesus and everything else of good that religion ever talked about. But, but we have to be careful not to become the publican. Yes. Oh, oh that's the other side of it, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. And becoming the martyr for our faith. Oh, mm-hmm. I must do this, and I'm yeah. so good. And that's the masochism thing that comes in again, too, yeah. Yeah. So is this what we're talking about when we say a transcendent Christian, one who has, has accepted their, their role of, of being good in the world and not being a, not being a masochist about it? Uh, in some ways, that would be the beginning point, I think. I would push it further yet. Because I can see some people who are in fundamentalist modes doing that. Mm. You know, they're out doing what they think is good for the world. God help us. 
And in some ways, to, to be fair, they are good people. Mm -hmm. When you really meet them on a one-to-one -one level, their hearts are in the right place and they're doing as best they know. I hold the leaders responsible. I think Jesus said that, woe to you, because you, uh, you make burdens and put them on people's shoulders yeah. and don't lift them yourself. The people who are leading these, this conservative, uh, narrow-minded religion, uh, they, they should know better. And if they don't, they're culpable for that. Mm -hmm. And if they do know better, they're being dishonest. But the good people, they do as best they can. Uh, but but to be, so they could be doing that, picking up the slack, doing what they think they need, and still not be transcended. What I'm meaning when I say transcended is that you have moved your religion to a point where it comes together and touches the other religions of the world, yeah. where you're able to live as a Christian and still be in harmony with the rest of what is going on insofar as it's good, that you can respect other religions, that you can see Jesus in other people, that you know Jesus well enough that you recognize him anywhere you see him. And oftentimes he doesn't have the word Christian written across his chest. <laughs> Indeed, some of the best Christians I've met have been atheists. Yes, yes. <laughs> and so, so to be a transcended the sense of a Christian who has gone beyond, who's moved beyond the, these trappings. And, and I guess that's where we started, the first question you yeah. asked. The need to break out sometime of the husks that bind the religion, or to, to use another metaphor, dig down deep to the inside of it to get to the core. Mm -hmm. And then one finds blossoming happening. I, I truly believe that a person can't be at peace with much of what's going on in other religions, at least to be able to see the goodness within them, that, that they certainly don't know what the depth of Christianity is about either. Oh, very true. Because if Jesus and what he was preaching and teaching didn't have to do with everyone in the world, then it can't be true either. And if it does have to do with everyone, well, then we should be able to find it elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And it's that difficult challenge of today's world of pluralism we can't avoid other religions, that we know them, that we have to come to grips with this fact. Otherwise, we're going to be fighting each other. I mean, it's happening. It's literally happening. Right. Religion is blowing up our world. Well, so how do we overcome this religion and start to live a transcended life? Well, one of the examples uh, that's easy for us is dealing with our sexuality. Those of us who have done the hard work and broken through without giving up our spiritual commitments, I'll say spiritual at this point because I'm not necessarily sure that they're always part of what the religions are about, but if we hold on to our souls and not sell out our souls just because we want to enjoy the bodies that God gave us, uh, we have to break through the system. And those of us who've done that realize that there are certain things in the tradition that just were askew. Uh, I'm lucky to have the, the background. I can show historically where it went astray and why. John Boswell did some remarkable work on that. Mm -hmm. We can show for reasonable arguments why some of the positions that are taught that, that you know, homosexuality is evil in itself. Uh, well, why? Show me. What's wrong with it? I, I once confronted a fundamentalist preacher at this uh, I said, you know, tell me what's wrong. Two people fall in love, their lives blossom, they're happy, their friends are happier, they're doing better work, they're contributing to the world more. What is wrong with that? And his response was, I don't answer those questions, I just look at the word. Oh, of course, yeah. Which means I Bible trump card. Yeah, yeah, it's the Bible trump card. To stop thinking can't possibly be what God wants of us. Yeah. And so 
that issue of transcending is breaking through, breaking through those other things. And those of us who've done it as, as dealing with sexuality, I think, are, are way beyond most other people in their thinking. Mm -hmm. We haven't chucked our religion, and yet we're able to do, open up in a broad way to an array of people and, and situations in our world that others don't. I, in my book, I start out with the story of a friend of mine who was divorced, mm -hmm. the daughter of a minister's family, and she was the favorite daughter of the church. And the marriage was hopeless, absolutely hopeless. And for the sake of her son, she had to get out of it. And she was summarily dismissed from her congregation. Yeah. And it left her wondering, what is all this about? And she struggled through it, again, because she had deep religious upbringing. She found a whole new way, opened up, and one of the most beautiful people that I know, a good person, her whole life has been doing work in non-service organizations, and she continues that. If that's not Christian, if I can't see Jesus in her, I don't know where he is. Exactly. She's transcended. She hasn't given it up, but she's moved beyond it in certain ways that allows her to branch out and, I think, express what it, the true heart of the religion is about. So what do you say to those people, because I get it now and then, but what do you say to those people like that fundamentalist minister who say, you know, you're not Christian unless you believe all of this dogma and believe everything that the church tells you you're supposed to believe? Yeah. I think there's nothing that can be said as by way of what argument, if we have to use that word, or trying to convince. I think the only thing that needs to be said is a clear statement that is your interpretation. Others don't see it that way. The Bible and homosexuality, for example, there's a massive body of evidence on the other side. You have chosen to look at it from that point of view. Mm -hmm. And so don't say that that's Christian. I think what I'm saying is Christian. I think the point is to challenge what they're calling Christian outright. Yeah. Not to, it is no sense arguing it, but to get on the record, no, I don't agree with you. I think other positions are Christian and yours may well not be. Mm. And I think leave it at that. Uh, I don't see any way of arguing out of that. Well, do you ultimately see a change coming in Christianity itself? Uh, so far, I have to admit I have not seen a lot of it. Mm -hmm. But it will come. It has to come. Because if it doesn't, the religions can become irrelevant. Uh, there, there's, at least in the Christianity I knew, there's an intense grappling with life. And as history moves on, that grappling forces the religion to shift. And you can see that through the whole of Christianity. To some extent, that's in some of the other religions. But I, I'm not sure. That they, they, they more easily move in mythic, suggestive, inspirational kinds of realms. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure how deep... Uh, this is a, I'm really out on a limb here. <laughs> I'm really not sure how deep the commitment to truth is that's in Christianity. That's one of the hallmarks of the religion. It comes from that notion of revelation. God revealed it, therefore it is true. And then you start grappling with what does something mean to be true. Uh, it, it's what uh, science came out of. Put Christianity, Judaism, Christianity, and Greek thought together, and you've got the scientific mindset that, that in fact, is, is the, lead, it's the lead edge in, in what's going on in our world. So, so that there's that notion that the, the, the religion has to, it has to grow beyond where it's been. For more information about Daniel Helminiak and his new book, Spirituality for Our Global Community, visit visionsofdaniel.net.
Daniel Helminiak's latest books is called The Transcended Christian. It's a collection of essays and lectures Helminiak has given over the years, urging GOBT Christians to transcend the religion we've been handed that no longer works for us. Instead of abandoning God and our faith, Helminiak writes about how we can take our faith seriously in the 21st century without closing our minds to scientific and other advances. Helminiak reads from the first chapter of the book about the spiritual heritage of Christianity. My intent is to show that Christianity does bear a profound spiritual heritage. But of late, Western religion has been pushing a cold and shallow agenda, a literal Bible, rote doctrinal formulas, opposition to science, relentless moralizing, and unbending institutional allegiance. Christianity seems simple-minded. Therefore, many people have looked to spiritual movements from the East for guidance. People tend to forget that what we read of Eastern philosophy and religion is the very best of what the East has to offer. Only the best gets translated. In contrast, we are familiar with every dirty detail of our own religion. Besides, few of us actually know the great classics of Christianity. Irenaeus, Athanasius, Augustine, Dionysius de Sudiariopagite, Benedict of Nursia, Bernard of Clairvaux, Thomas Aquinas, Francis of Assisi, Catherine of Siena, Meister Eckhart, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, John Wesley, and the list goes on. The mystics and saints of Christianity, the theologians and the philosophers, offer as profound an insight into life as any others. In contrast to most Eastern thought, Christianity is actually more down-to-earth, more concerned about life in this world, more invested in issues of justice, love, peace, and politics, all matters that burden the budding global community. The deep currents of Christian spirituality are not about pie in the sky, some supposed spiritual fulfillment in some other life. Look at the biography of any of these people whose names I just listed. None was a spaced out mystic. Each was a formidable mover and shaker who changed his or her world. After all, the central belief of Christianity is about incarnation, about a God who came to live among us on this earth. To be sure, we have taken this belief and turned it into a fairy tale about an otherworldly Superman. But surely the notion of God become flesh confirms the value of humanity and this world more than it exalts God and the world to come. Christianity has to do with open-eyed, liberated, grace-grateful living in the here and now, and then only by implication about hope for fulfillment in another world. I am not trying to pit East against West, one religion against another. No way. My emphasis is on the commonalities among the world's religions. I want to highlight a spiritual core that all people of goodwill could embrace. That core is in Christianity, as well as in other religions. By discovering that core, we could nurture our roots in Christianity while also embracing the spiritual wisdom of other traditions. Alienated Christians need not necessarily chuck their Christianity to find peace of soul. In their own religious tradition, they can find stepping stones that lead to spiritual fulfillment. 
wherever it may eventually lie. Uh, what I propose, you see, is still in some ways a rather conservative project. The goal is not to throw off our religion, but to revitalize it. And in today's global society, revitalization can only mean some kind of reconciliation of all religions at their depths. My hope is that this book will serve you, my readers here, my listeners, as a bridge on which to cross over to a globally viable spirituality with your Christianity intact. wrap up this Godcast with some holy humor. Brother John entered the Monastery of Silence, and the abbot said, Brother, this is a silent monastery. You're welcome here as long as you wish, but you may not speak until I direct you to do so. Brother John lived in the monastery for five years before the abbot said to him, Brother John, you've been here five years now. You may speak two words. Brother John said, Hard bed. I'm sorry to hear that, the abbot said. I'll get you a better bed. After another five years, Brother John was called by the abbot. You may say another two words, Brother John. Cold food, said Brother John, and the abbot assured him that the food would be better in the future. On his 15th anniversary at the monastery, the abbot again called Brother John into his office. Two words you may say today. I quit, said Brother John. It's probably best, said the abbot. You've done nothing but complain since you got here. Thank you so much for joining us for another Whosoever Magazine Godcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can tell us your thoughts, comments, or suggestions by writing to us. Our email address is godcast at whosoever.org. Or you can leave comments at our blog at whosoeverpods.blogspot.com. The theme music for our program has been provided by Adam Curley. Other music includes samples from Heavy Mellow, Trip Wamsley, and Jan Hanford, all available from magnatune.com. If you'd like to join the Whosoever community, we have many online groups that you can join for fun and support. You can find Whosoeverins in your area when you join our Rainbow Fish groups. To find out more, go to whosoever.org slash rainbowfish. If you're enjoying our podcast, please consider making a monetary donation to our ministry. It does take money to produce and broadcast this program and to keep our ministry on the web, where we've been a valuable resource to our community for more than a decade. You can donate by credit card by going to our website at whosoever.org slash donate, or you can send checks to Whosoever Ministries Incorporated, Post Office Box 727, Camden, South Carolina, 2902. Remember, whosoever is a 501c3 nonprofit, that means all donations are tax deductible. Join us again for our next Godcast when we'll talk with Tony Jones, author of The New Christians. May God bless you until we meet again. Mm-hmm.